to another episode of the In Context podcast. Today I'm with Andy Constable, a good friend of mine from up in Nidri. So Andy, just share a little bit about yourself and about uh, what you've been studying over the last couple of years. Yeah, hi everyone. Um, my name's Andy and I'm up at Nidri Community Church. I'm one of the, the pastors up there and um, I'm one of the co-directors of a ministry called 20 Schemes. I've been in Nidri for about 13 years, I'm just ministering here, and I'm married to Debbie, I've got three kids. Um, I started my master's about three years ago, um, the first two years are just doing general papers on um, a range of different subjects, and in your final year, when you're doing it part-time, you get to, to do a master's uh, dissertation, and so that's what I've been spending the last 12 months or so doing. Um, and I did my dissertation on uh, pastoral care and addiction. So you've been in Nidri for how long now? Is it about 10 years? Yeah, um, <clears throat> officially started in 2010 as an intern, but I was worshipping at the church from about 2008. Great, wow. So you, you have a, a personal experience through the ministry of working with addicts, You've been doing that for a long time, so why on earth would you, if you've got a practical knowledge and a theological framework through your church in dealing with addiction, why would you then go on and study it? What was uh, your thought behind writing a paper on addiction? Yeah, I mean, um, like you said, obviously got um, a lot of practical understanding of addiction just through working with people. That's how you, I guess, you learn. Um and um, I think as a church, we've been influenced, like a lot of churches in the evangelical world, by the work of CCEF and the biblical counselling movement. And um, in particular, our church has been influenced by a book called Banquet in the Grave by Ed Welch, which is a brilliant book. Um, but outside of that, I hadn't really read much on addiction apart from that book. And so I really wanted to do my dissertation on this subject so I could just read a bit more widely about the subject. And it was as I was reading a bit more widely, um, I was just researching, and I think I was researching on Amazon. Um, sorry, 10 of those, but I was on Amazon uh, for a few minutes. Um, and I was just typing addiction and pastoral care, and a book came up that had just been released in 2009 by a lady called Sonia Waters. So I bought it. And um, I read it, and um, even though, and we'll get, I'm sure we'll get into this in a few moments, but even though she was writing from a completely different theological standpoint, a lot of the practical things that she was suggesting and a lot of things that she was experiencing and that she was writing about um, resonated with what we'd experienced in, in Nidri. And it just got me thinking, um, what else is out there on addiction? What are there other things that we're missing that are outside of Ed Welch's and CCF's world and work? And is there things that we need to revise in our practice at Nidri Community Church? And it was just to, just to re-look at things, re-examine things, look at the Bible again and just look at our practice again, because it's always important, I think, just to to examine yourself and, and, and how you're ministering to people to make sure that you're on the, the right lines and learn from other people. Yeah, interesting that we often will find something that we have that either works for us or 
that we agree with and we will stick within that camp, especially theologically. And we'll, we'll only search, for example, on 10 of those because we trust that site to mm. produce certain uh, theological standard of books. And often uh, just typing in Google or typing in Amazon to find other uh, resources just is something that we've got out of the habit of, maybe mm. out of fear or out of just getting, I don't know, just comfortable and stuck in a rut. So, that, yeah, that, that strikes me as interesting, especially in this climate where you've deliberately chose to read a book and then research a book that was written by somebody from a different theological standpoint. Because if you look at the evangelical church at the moment, so many people uh, are adverse to uh, and resist going out of their camp, don't they? Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> so, so how did that feel then? Because I know I, I've been trying to do that over the last couple of months or a couple of years is, is, is start reading a bit wider and read from people who I don't agree with uh, on 100% of things and I often find that challenging so when you read this book uh, how, how did you remain balanced as you were reading it and how did you manage to pick out the the, the gold nuggets from the bits that uh, you disagreed with yeah like you said that what's been good with the masters is just you get to read more widely than, like you said, than the trusted resources that are, are given to you. And of course, those trusted resources are great, um, particularly from a reform standpoint. Um, but it just helps to stretch yourself um, to read a little bit outside of that. And it will either question what you already know, or it will affirm it, or there might be things that you need to change in terms of how you view things. And that's not a bad thing either, because we're always learning and always growing up in grace and we're always being renewed in our minds. And um, yeah, I think what I did was I just read through the book firstly, and I just read it with a, uh, with a pencil in my hand. And I just, if you read the book, my copy, you just see just underlinings everywhere. And I was just underlining things that I agreed with. I was putting question marks at the things I disagreed with as like as my first response. Um, I put questions in the margins of my book as I was reading through. And I was just trying to because I've been so steeped in, in CCF world again, which is which is absolutely brilliant and um agree with, you know, a, a lot of what's been written. Um I was just all always in my mind just um testing against that, but also against the scriptures as well. Um, and so there were some things in the book because he's an Episcopalian priest. You can just like, you can almost chuck out immediately. Um, so for example, in her book, um, she um, looks at the demon possessed man in Mark chapter five and says, that's like the addict. And so she does eisegesis. He just reads into the text um, without doing the exegesis of the text. And so that, you know, for me, it was like, that was fairly easy just to, she's obviously not reading the text, um, you know, biblically, theologically, exegetically. Um, she's not looking at the context before she applies it to us. And obviously that's a, a big no-no for us. Um, but some of the conclusions that she, she brought out of it in terms of what it might feel like to be an addict might have felt a little bit like the demon-possessed man who's ostracized from his community, who feels powerless. It was like, I could see that in terms of how she um, interpreted the, the demon-possessed man allegorically. Um, and so there were, there were little nuggets there. I was like, okay, I, I could see where she was coming from, although I would chuck out the premise, but I could see where she was coming from to try and interpret 
um, the addicted person, not just as a sinner, but as a sufferer as well. And someone who was, you know, addiction does feel like you're possessed sometimes. <laughs> you know, you look at some of the guys walking around my scheme, it's like they're the walking dead. Um, it's almost like they're possessed by something and ostracized from the community and they don't have any other way out. And so I could understand the emotion before behind the chapter that she was writing, but obviously like theologically and exegetically and trying to read into the text, she, she read into it rather than, um, you know, doing the context first before applying it to ourselves. And so there was things just along the lines that I could reject out of hand and there were other things like, oh, I need to research that a little bit more. And particularly, um, she builds a lot of her premises, the, uh, um, the lady Sonia Waters, off the back of scientific research rather than biblical research. Um, and so part of my paper was, okay, I've got to look at the foundations or the presuppositions behind where these guys come from. So obviously CCF and biblical counselling um, would say the Bible is, is sufficient for life and godliness and for interpreting the human need and the human solution to, to that need or the, the, the God solution to that need. Um, and they wouldn't really look at scientific findings at all uh, for a variety of different reasons. Some good, um, some I think um, fair, uh, a little bit more weak. Um, but this lady on the other hand, instead of coming to the Bible first, she went to the scientific literature first and then she went to the Bible which obviously has its own weaknesses because then you're appropriating the scientific findings with with the Bible and then you're reading the scientific finals, findings back into the Bible instead of coming to the Bible first and then looking at the scientific findings. Um, um, and so it meant that she came to addictions through a, a very different avenue to what I'm used to, um, a very skewed avenue. And yet there were some things that were brought out the scientific findings that again I, I would have agreed with that I agree with and um, that were helpful for me as I thought through through addiction. Yeah and again you mentioned there uh, as you were talking and explaining the addict and how she explains what an addict is as a sinner and sufferer and that was the the, uh, the name of your paper uh, which is uh, not unique, but I think the unique bit is and in the middle where often we will look at an addict as a sinner or a sufferer. Very rarely do we look at them as both. And uh, just share a little bit of uh, any frustrations that you might have had within your ministry or any challenges you've had because of people's uh, look at an addict as either a sinner or as a sufferer and how long did it, take you to get that point where you'd see them as both mm -hmm. yeah so um the uh, book banquet in a grave um uh, by ed welch um as many people know um posits that addiction is idolatry that it's a it's a worship problem um and it's a it's a desire problem and so the focus of the book is on the soul it's on the heart which is very right very correct um we are sinners who've rebelled against the holy god um and an addict like anybody else um in the world um is a rebel and is a sinner and um you know um throughout the last hundred years 
um, that theme comes up again and again in the writings of Christians that there seems to be some sort of a um, attachment problem um, from the addict where they're trying to replace God with, with other things. And we know Romans 1 talks about that, that we as humans replace creator with creation. And that certainly um, describes the, the, the addicted person. Um, but what, um, what Ed Welsh doesn't touch upon us so much in that book anyway um, is um, what about the person's background as well and how does the person's background contribute also to the choices that they make because we're not born in a vacuum um, we're born in a certain family we're born in certain communities um, we have certain life experiences that also contribute to the decisions that we make that doesn't make doesn't mean that they determine our choices but they can influence the choices that we make and um, the things that happen in our lives. And so that's why the other book was really helpful. So if you think generally of Ed Welch talking about the addict as the idolater as a sinner, the other book was saying, no, no, they're not sinners. They're just sufferers um, who, uh, who are running away from pain. Um, so Ed Welch would say it's a pursuit of pleasure uh, where we're, it's a, it's a desire that takes over us when worshipping the the drug or the, the alcohol over God, whereas she was saying, no, it's not really a worship problem. It's not really a sin problem even. Um, a lot of addicts are running away from painful circumstances um, and they're trying to cope with the vulnerabilities that um, have hit them in their lives. And I was just saying in my paper, well, it's, it doesn't have to be either. <laughs> It can be both ends, you know. Uh, and as I looked at the people that I've worked with over the last 15 years or 13 to 15 years, it's interesting. Not all of them, but many of them um, have been influenced either by peer group because a lot of people are on drink and drugs in their community or in their families. And it was also interesting that a lot of people I interviewed had also had traumatic upbringings and experiences in their lives and that a lot of them did frame talking about addiction as a coping mechanism for stress and painful things in their lives um, and so that's why I named the paper Sinners and Sufferers um, that an addict is an idolater but at the same time they're also a sufferer because and they're causing suffering to themselves they've maybe been through suffering and they're causing suffering to others as well in their addiction and so it's it can be both and um i think in terms of ministry in nidri um i've fluctuated between the two um but um i've probably tended towards the kind of outlook of the uh, addicted person as a sinner um and I think what can happen over time is that you can get quite hard-hearted to people um, and you can get quite cynical towards people um, because as you work with addicted people, um, I know this is the whole of humanity, but particularly it comes out in addiction, just the deviousness that goes with it, um, the deflection that goes with it, the manipulation, the lies. Um, because the addicted person has to um, feed their habit some way and 
they have to live in their their narrative and in their reality and they have to justify it um and they know it's not acceptable and they probably know deep down it's harming other people but they have to try and put on this facade that everything's okay and um and so does lies and manipulation go hand in hand with with drug and alcohol addiction particularly and so it's easy as time goes on as you're working with people just to get really cynical and hard-hearted towards people and forget that maybe there's suffering in their lives as well that needs to be counseled and and um and that you yeah that we need to be soft-hearted towards them because that could easily be any of us as well. <laughs> um, just because someone's gone down that road and I haven't gone down that road doesn't mean I'm a better person than that person. Um, just means God's been gracious to me. Um, and I think you're always just balancing that in your head as you're, as you're walking with people. It's interesting, funny, just reminds me of a book that I read by Jerry Bridges, that last statement he made when he's talking about humility and how often we'll we'll judge others uh, on their circumstances and that we forget that as reformed people, we, we love to talk about the sovereignty of God, forgetting that within God's sovereignty, he chooses for some to be addicts and some, some who aren't. And again, it is only by the grace of God that we have been uh, yeah, protected uh, from that type of addiction. Although, like you say, we have other addictions, we, we have other... Uh, false gods in our lives don't we and I think uh, what what strikes me is coming from an addictive background and uh, an area of poverty where I can see that uh, some people will have used drugs as a coping mechanism uh, I wouldn't say that I did I took drugs when I was 14 because of peers. My friends were taking them at the school disco, so I, I took them. Uh, but what I found was when I came off the drugs was that it, I, I can't stand the word self-medicate because I don't think anyone ever thought I'm going to take these drugs because it makes me feel better. I think a lot of people just think I'm going to take them so I can get off my head. Mm -hmm. But what I found was subconsciously that a lot of uh, the mental health issues that I had or even neurological problems so I, I probably would have been diagnosed with ADHD if I was at school today mm. uh, but what I found was while I was on drugs I was less erratic and less impulsive <laughs> than most people mm. and, and when I became a Christian and I, and I came off the drugs I suffered all kinds of mental health issues and uh, paranoias and anxieties which I think I already had as a child but these were masked when I was growing up but I'd never heard the term self-medicate I'd never related anything to trauma or attachment issues. So when I first heard these scientific explanations, I was quite offended. <laughs> I was like, I just dismissed it because it, it I just thought these terms were, were excuses for people uh, and, and, and for myself. And I, and I would have been along the lines that I was just a sinner. Uh, so it's been helpful for me to look at this and, and maybe have a bit more compassion, if not for myself, but for other people who, uh, have struggled differently to me because, like you mentioned, my my initial uh, entrance into the drug life was through peers. But the addicts, the community of addicts is so different. It's so diverse, isn't it? There's so many ways in. So what, what did you find from looking at your research? Was there any differences and similarities you noticed between people from 
a more affluent background uh, and how addiction affects them and for people from a, an area of poverty and how addiction would affect them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so um, I did in my research, just because of time and availability, I, I interviewed eight people. Um, six of those who were interviewed were from an area of poverty and two were from um, kind of a richer background. Um, and um, I think two or three said um, that they got into addiction because of kind of peers introducing them to drugs and um, they were particularly from Nidri um, or the schemes around Nidri um, they said because family members were taking it or friends were taking it and introduced them and it got them, got them hooked and once they got into that vicious cycle it was hard to get out particularly when they tried to stop um, dealing with stress was really difficult and so what would happen is they would stop for a little bit and then something would stress them out and then they would go back on it again um, and so it was like a vicious cycle for them um, and then those, if you want, from more affluent areas, both of them um, had uh, abusive backgrounds in a variety of different ways, and they used the language of they started doing it because they wanted to get out of their head from what they were experiencing um, in the home or at school. Um, and so um, they started to, if you want to put it that way, self-medicate. And just get out of their heads because it means they didn't have to think about the stress of their lives or the difficulty that was going on um, in in their lives. But so it was, seemed to be a combination of social um, um, problems, so peer peer group, family group, introducing the drugs, but also the stress and pain that goes along with um, abuse, trauma, traumatic events in the, in their lives. Um, and that to those two kind of things kind of kind of led into to, to the addiction and then once they were in the cycle in the vicious cycle it was just hard to get out because like you said once they stopped then everything that they were trying to run away from would come back up in their minds again and they were having to deal with life without addiction without drugs and alcohol and once you're dependent on something and that's your coping mechanism um it's hard then to work out new coping mechanisms for um, for dealing with stressful circumstances. It's easier just to pop a pill or inject some heroin or smoke a doobie um, than actually sit and having to deal with the stress in your mind uh, in a mature fashion, uh, which usually means talking through it with people, enduring through difficult things, making difficult choices, not running away from problems. And... Um, yeah, it's interesting that a lot of the guys that I've interviewed um, would say the minute they started taking drugs is the minute they stopped maturing as people. And so they've had to kind of, since not taking drugs, mature. And the way that we mature is through suffering um, and going through difficult times by relying on the Lord. Um, and so I think that fits in with what you were saying just a minute ago, which is... I think this stuff helps with our discipleship, particularly. So, if someone comes from, um, if someone comes into our church and they need the gospel, they need to know that they're a sinner, 
as well as a sufferer. And I need to know that the only way to be healed is through the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, but the hard work obviously starts, as we know, when someone becomes a Christian. Um, and they need the spiritual help in learning their own desires and their own hearts. But a lot of the time, they also need physical help. Um, they need new routines in their lives, new habits to be formed. And the community. So peer pressure was a reason for getting into drugs. They need to have a loving community around them that helps them and that cares for them and that loves them well so that they can grow in godliness and grow in grace. And they need to be helped to learn how to deal with stress in a, a new and biblical way. Um, and so um, that's where I thought some of the stuff from the other book was helpful in terms of helping people walk through their past a little bit and also helping people to form new habits in their lives and not just looking at the spiritual stuff which is obviously the center point but also we need to look at the social environment as well and we also need to look at biology as well and how the drugs have affected someone's head and the, and um and their bodies as well because it has an effect on that area as well and we're not just spiritual creatures we're embodied creatures um and so um i think at part of the weakness of banquet in the grave and it was written a long time ago now uh, I know that Ed Welch has written some other blogs since um, writing that book, and I'm sure there'll be things that he would add into that book and um, that were a little bit different to, to maybe how he would see things today, like just in terms of the causes um, and also maybe some of the discipleship that need, that's needed on the other end. Um, but, um, yeah, I think the discipleship on the other end is something that we have to think think well. We have to think it through well as churches. Um and think why than just i know spiritual affects everything but like we're, we're dealing with the desires of the heart but also dealing with the the human body as well and working through um how we can help that as well yeah and i think that's something that sadly has been missing from the understanding of pastors and church leaders and church members who are dealing with addicts and i find it interesting funnily how uh, I think every couple of seasons, there's a seasonal church, uh, like, uh, program that they'll want to, to deal with a specific issue, won't they? So there's different seasons with different issues. And uh, not long ago, pornography and sex was a big thing. And everyone was talking about the biological effects on the brain from watching pornography and uh, the result of the endorphins and how you've got to become more and more extreme with uh, the pornography to get the same high that you got when you watched it. And I heard so much talk on the biology of the brain with, with porn addiction or sex addiction, but very, I don't think you're the first person that I've heard uh, discuss it when talking about addicts uh, mm. with chemical addiction, with drug addiction. And uh, yeah, just explain a little bit how that, that biology of the brain makes discipling somebody who comes from an addictive background so much more difficult than say if somebody was just dealing with the traditional sins that are brought into the church mm -hmm. yeah so it's, it's interesting that um in the last 10 20 years like the medical world has focused particularly on the on the brain and there's been a lot of research has been done um on you know what effect drugs and alcohol has on the brain. So it used to be thought, you know, and the old argument was um, about 
um, addiction being kind of genetic and kind of passed down from generation to generation. That's now been debunked. Um, and um, the focus has been more on the social environment that people were brought up in. Um, so a lot of the research that's been done in the last 10 years particularly has been on, um, you know, the effect of attachment theory um, and trauma on the brain and then that leading into vulnerabilities for addiction. Again, doesn't determine that you're an addict, but can lead to vulnerabilities um, for addiction. And then also um, the effects that... Um, um, the drug or alcohol has has on the brain specifically um, and I mean the, the main focus has been on um, the fact that when we take drugs um, specific chemicals are released in the brain um, and um, it affects like the neurotransmissions um, and that means that when someone stops taking the drug it means that you feel very depressed and very down afterwards and very low um, and that's because your your brain's used to getting all these endorphins uh, dopamine going through the brain um, and it's now not reacting because it's not got the chemical that's been injected or sniffed or, or, or whatever else um, and so part of what I was talking about was when someone stops taking a drug the first few months are really key in our discipleship because that's when people are very vulnerable um, because they feel so low and they feel stressed and they feel down um, and to go cold turkey is very difficult um, and and without support um, and so what we found with a lot of our guys and girls is actually going away for a season has been really helpful um, so going away to a Christian rehab for 10 to 12 months is really helpful for a couple of reasons. One, because they're away from proximity to drugs and the temptations that are there. Two, because they get to just reboot the brain, their souls, their bodies by being in strict routine somewhere else. Um, uh, uh, and three, it's just a place where they can um, process maybe some of the struggles of their lives and really get into the scriptures. Um, and sometimes it's not everybody, some people can just stop taking drugs and, and they're fine. But we found that a lot of our guys have found that helpful to go away for a season, to reboot emotionally, reboot spiritually, reboot physically, and then, and then come back into their environment and the responsibilities. And that means by that time, the, the brain has, the brain's very adaptable. Um, it means it can adapt again to the new set of circumstances without without the drugs that are being um, that are flowing around the brain, and so I just found that interesting that a lot of the the guys and girls I interviewed again not all of them, but most of them have had some sort of time outside of their environment for a season, whether that's in a Christian rehab or in a discipleship house, and that's been really fundamental for their growth and continual resistance of going back to addictions going back to drinking drugs um it's been really helpful yeah and again i think even with rehab even with the best discipleship in in the world there's a lot of pressure on the adult personally to mm. ultimately no matter how well the church is or how well the pastor has researched drug addiction 
if the the, the addict uh, doesn't have that desire to move forward and isn't willing yeah. to work hard, uh, it, it, it involves the whole church and the addict to be on the same page, doesn't it? But again, I think for me, there was little, the discipleship, I was pretty much told that it was sinful and that I had to stop taking drugs because it, was, it upset Jesus, basically. And I think uh, even though I, when I became clean, it was I had to get to the point where I loved Jesus more than the drug. But I think a lot of the problems for me with addiction was it got me into massive debt. It was getting me into relationship problems. And the, the, I loved the drug. I loved the high and I, I didn't like the, the negative sides of the lifestyle. So when I became a Christian, I didn't stop loving the drug and that temptation was there. But even when I, I found myself discipled well, even well, I, I found myself loving the Lord and, and my desire was for Jesus more than the drug. What I wasn't prepared for was certain triggers that would come on through my life, even years later. So Friday afternoons, uh, dinner time when I was at work, that's when I used to order the drugs. So every Friday lunchtime, I used to get a little buzz and that, but I didn't get the high because normally I'd order the drugs. So I used to struggle on a Friday lunchtime because that was when I'd normally get the ordering. Um, sex was often done while I was high. So that affects your relationships and uh, my relationships were built. And if you upset me, I'm going out and getting high. So things that I'd been in a safe space for uh, about two years when I became a Christian, a church helped me and moved me off my estate. So I was similar to a rehab. Uh, so I was free from temptation. I, I spent a lot of time in the word and growing in my, my relationship with Jesus. But the hard work didn't really start till I, I entered back into civilian life. <laughs> so that was when I was faced with having to deal with being a husband or dealing with being a father when I was struggling financially or when I was bored. So how can churches help people post rehab, post getting clean? Because it's a long journey, isn't it? And it doesn't just affect, addiction isn't just about taking drugs and getting high. It affects every area of your life. So how do you prepare the person post rehab? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Your point is bang on. The rehab's the easy bit. <laughs> um, you know, a lot of these Christian rehabs are brilliant. Um, because they just um, have intense discipleship every day and all responsibilities are taken off their shoulders so they don't have to worry about their money or what they're going to eat or stressful circumstances in the home, dealing with the kids, dealing with a wife or a husband and the stressful things that we have in, in life. And so um, the hard bits when, as we pull it, you get back into the concrete jungle and you're faced with the temptation and you're faced with the decisions you have to make and the responsibilities of family life and um, a lot of addicted people um, have not had any responsibilities in their lives and um, for a variety of different reasons but that can make people quite lazy um, and quite self-centered and selfish um, and in a kind of um, serve me mentality um, so coming out of that environment and coming into the local church or back into your family or wherever it is and suddenly you've got responsibilities and paying bills and all that kind of stuff can be very stressful and like you said can trigger people just say Do you know what I'm not going to bother doing this anymore I'm going to I'm going to just run back to the drink and drugs again 
Um, so, I mean, a, a number of things that we do at Nidri, um, the first thing is um, keeping people busy. Um, so when they, they come out, come straight out into something, some sort of routine, um, we're very blessed in that we've got a cafe that we run and we've got various ministries that run every day. The way we set up our ministry is that it's everyday ministry throughout the week. And so there's always someone around or there's always something going on that people can get stuck into. And so we have, um, uh, if someone's coming straight out, we have a, we, we'll, we'll put them straight into a kind of an internship program where they're kept busy during the week. Um, and the second thing we'll do is we'll make sure they have a one-to-one relationship where the person checks in on them each week and reads the Bible with them, prays with them, does the, the normal stuff for discipleship, which is so important. Because um, one of the interesting things is with a lot of the scientific research, and this is just a biblical thing, is that um, having some sort of long-term relationship with someone who's not in that world, who loves you and cares for you and is there for you is really important for for us all, but particularly for the addicted person, someone to rely on and someone to encourage them and someone to kick them up the backside um, is really, really important. So we do that. Um, and then thirdly, um, again, um, it's getting people back into the workplace that's really important. And so we've set up a, um, a back to work project to help people get back into work. So whether that's helping them find a job, help them set up businesses or to employ them in one of our businesses that we're running. Um, and so we, we take guys from Christian rehab from all over the UK, particularly Scotland. And, um, we have kind of tracks them to get back into, back into work, um, which I think is really, really important. Um, in terms of like one of the criticisms of my paper from my marker was, um, I didn't talk about, um, how this could a church that's not in a housing scheme replicate what we're doing? Um, you know, um, because um, we're a unique church. We're in the middle of a council state. We've got a good number of staff. We've got ministries running during the week. We've got the back to work project. We've got all these things set up. What if you're more a gathered church? What could you do to support an addict? And I think the UK of course, UK, we need to think more strategically about what interns are taking. And so again, the argument about don't just take interns from seminary. Could you take an intern from a Christian rehab who's just had a year in rehab and take them and, and train them up and um, and take them from their environment and, and bring them into your environment and give them a family and, and a friendship? Could we more strategically across the UK churches take on people like that? rather than just the traditional interns from UCCF or or Christian unions or from, you know, from seminary, seminaries. Um, the second thing is support churches that are doing it. So could a bigger church support a smaller church, like one in Middlesbrough or one in Edinburgh or whatever else, who are able to do that? So maybe your church isn't set up to do that and you don't really know what you're doing with guides. Well, support those who do know what they're doing and um, get alongside them so that they can support guys coming out of rehab or guys coming away from addiction. Um, and then the third thing is, could you change the philosophy of ministry that you're doing at the moment from being more gathered to more local um, ministry? Because 
um, you know, in Scotland anyway, the, the figures are the high, the, the poorer the area, the more high percentage of addicts there are. Um, and so could you do a work in a, in a local community? Could you plant a church? Could you revitalize the church there and get alongside the people in that community to share the gospel and, and disciple them? long term and that's i mean that's part of the argument of medhurst ministries part of the argument 20 schemes like oh everyone needs the gospel rich and poor um but could we think a bit more strategically about how we're reaching the poor um and getting alongside guys from addictive backgrounds um and so i think there come some things that, that churches could consider in the in the coming in the coming years in terms of their strategy and philosophy and ministry awesome and again your paper, I found that coming. I think the danger is <laughs> often seeing yourself as an expert. I spent from the ages of 14 to 28 taking drugs and then spent the last 15 years in ministry working with drug addicts. And you can kind of think uh, you're an expert in the field and there's nothing more to learn. But just reading your paper there, uh, I was reminded of things I'd forgotten and learned quite a few uh, new things as well. But I think the biggest thing was convicted and that. I was just seeing somebody as a sinner uh, rather than as a sufferer as well. So it was really educating for me to read that paper. Is there any opportunities for our listeners to learn a bit more or to read your paper or hear a bit more about from your research? Yeah, I think um, um, if people want to email me, I can send it the PDF out to them. I think it will be published online um, soon through the Union School of Theology. They put their papers up. And so you should be able to to look at sinners and sufferers. If you want to just read the books that I read, obviously Ed Welch, I think most of listeners would have read that. If you want to read an alternative book, Sonia Waters, um, her book is just called Pastoral Care and Addiction, um, which is a really good book. Um, another book by Linda McCann McCandante, who's written a book called Victims um, and Sinners. Um, which is really helpful looking at the AA movement particularly. And then the last book I recommend, um, let me see if I've got it here. Um, the last book I recommend is, um, I haven't got it here, um, is, there's sorry, two last books I recommend. Um, a book I recommend from a non-Christian background, not non-Christian um, author is uh, Dr. Gabe Maté who's written a really accessible book called In the Realm of Hungry Ghosts. Um, he works with addicts in Vancouver, and a lot of his stuff is really, really interesting to read. Um, and then lastly, from a Christian point of view, it's not specifically on addiction, but I found um, his understanding of the hum of humanity really helpful and counselling is um, a book by a man called Dr. Eric L. Johnson, who's written two books two big books, one called God and Soul Care, and the second one is The Christian Psychology Proposal. And um, he um, looks at the biblical counselling movement and looks at the strengths and weaknesses of it, and that was really helpful for me to think through, you know, where Reformed Christians are strong and where they're weak and where do they need to improve and where do they need to grow. And he's he is Reformed, he's evangelical, um, but he thinks that sometimes... Um, the CCF movement can be quite boxed in terms of its analysis of humanity, um, in terms of just idolatry. Um, and if you look at the Puritans um, and the Reformers, they didn't just look at the soul, they looked also at the the physical 
and they also looked at the social and they looked at things wider than just idolatry um and the shame guilt how that affects people um suffering and all those and all those kind of things um so they would be books i recommend to read read further on the subject if you had time awesome. i'll be definitely take a look at that one uh but brother i'm gonna have to uh love you and leave you nathan's been stood outside for the last 10 minutes while we've been chatting <laughs> <laughs> I didn't want to interrupt you, so I've just left him stood in the cold. <laughs> sorry, sorry. <laughs> oh, mate, this was awesome. Thanks very much. Uh, Pleasure, man. For joining us, mate, and hopefully I'll see you soon, brother. Yeah, definitely. Thanks, man. God bless, mate.